friends and neighbors, you have tuned in to the Classic English Literature Subcast, that little bonus stream of the podcast where rhyme gets even more of its reason. Now, today's show is a little bit different from most of the others, as we're not really going to analyze any literature in particular. Rather, I wanted to do a little primer on a book as opposed to a text. That is, I want to look at a special book, not for its literary devices, its use of language, its development of themes, etc., but instead as a material object, as a historical artifact. Now, this episode is going out on November 30th, 2023, and this month has marked the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's first folio the earliest compendium of his plays, and a volume that has exerted an unmeasurable historical influence. Jonathan Bates, professor at uh, University of Arizona, he says it's certainly the most important secular book in Western civilization. The first folio is up there with Gutenberg's Bible as one of the most significant objects in publishing. Now, I know that at the end of our last full show, the one about Rosalind and Beatrice, I indicated that we would discuss Shakespeare's Julius Caesar next. Now, I slightly misspoke. I should have said that our next regular episode would do that. So, don't get nervous. You've not missed anything. It's just that I felt it my bounden duty to tip the hat to the first folio on this, the occasion of its 400th birthday. The term first folio refers to a collection of 36 Shakespeare plays, and it's officially titled Mr. William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories, and Tragedies. John Hemmings and Henry Condell, actors in Shakespeare's theater company The King's Men, uh, so named before their royal patronage by James I of England, they set out to collect and compile as many of Shakespeare's plays as they could, Now, this must have been a logistical and bureaucratic nightmare. The rights to each play, and each variant of a play, if there were different versions floating around, would have to be secured from an army of printers, publishers, patrons, theaters, theater managers, on and on and on. So these guys gathered manuscripts, prompt books, and other sources trying to find the most authoritative copies of the plays. And they were likely guided by the popularity and success of particular plays during Shakespeare's lifetime. You see, Shakespeare had died seven years earlier, in 1616. And so these editor-actors surely considered their understanding of his intentions for which plays should be preserved and published. And, of course... They also would have drawn on, you know, their personal knowledge of his preferences and artistic choices. So Hemings and Condell worked on transcribing the plays using the best available sources. They made editorial decisions and corrections, often relying on their own memory and the notes of other actors and stuff. Obviously, this process involved some editorial changes to the text. But uh, maybe we should back up a bit, huh? What actually is a folio, and what other published versions of the plays were in circulation? Well, terms like folio, quarto, and octavo, they're used in the world of bookbinding and publishing to describe the size of a book. 
They refer to the way sheets of paper are folded to create a book of a particular size. These terms use the Latin numerical prefixes for the number of folds. So, for example, a quarto comes from the Latin word for four, and octavo comes from the Latin word for eight. Now, other terms include duodecimo, which is folded into 12 leaves, and my favorite, sixteenmo, like folded into 16 leaves. Like, I guess they ran out of Latin stuff. They're not as current, these terms, in modern publishing because bookmaking technologies have changed, but they were pretty common when books were produced using large sheets of paper that were folded and trimmed to create the desired size. So, a folio-sized book is created by folding a sheet of paper in half once, resulting in two leaves or four pages, and each leaf is a single large page. A quarto-sized book is created by folding a sheet of paper in half twice, resulting in four leaves or eight pages. Right? So each leaf produces four pages, and quarto-sized books are typically smaller than folio-sized books. An octavo-sized is created by folding a sheet of paper in half three times, resulting eight leaves, 16 pages. So they're smaller still. Now, during the early modern period, you know, the Elizabethan and Jacobean eras, many plays, especially those of William Shakespeare and his contemporaries, they were originally published as quartos. And a play would be formatted in a quarto size and created a book about 9 by 12 inches, which allows for a relatively small and portable volume. Plays and other texts were often published individually rather than as part of a collected works to expedite publication and distribution of popular works. This format was a quicker and less expensive way to get, for our purposes, plays into the hands of the public. The downside, however, was that such a cheap method allowed for a good deal of what we would now call pirating. Fly-by-night publishers would bang out usually inferior products to capitalize on a fast-moving, faddish market. And so issues of authorial consent or control were roundly ignored. The result? Eh. The quality and accuracy of the printed text varied widely, um, often hilariously. And many unauthorized and incomplete versions of plays made their way into the public consciousness. Uh, We talked about this a little bit in the episode on Marlowe's Faustus. There are two quartos kicking around, and one of them is like half again as long as the first one. Shakespearean works like Henry IV Part I and his narrative poem Venus and Adonis, among others, Uh, circulated in what bibliographer Alfred W. Pollard has dubbed bad quartos. Perhaps the most famous of these is the first quarto version of Hamlet, which was entered in the Stationer's Register in 1602 and then published the following year. Now, for those of us familiar with the more authoritative second quarto of 1604 and the first folio of 1623 editions, The first quarto is sometimes laughably strange. Like, the character Polonius is called Carambus, and his servant is Montano, not Rinaldo. Gertrude is a bit more interesting. She's a bit more scheming against uh, husband Claudius and his villainy. 
and most notably the third soliloquy, that great to be or not to be, that thing gets hacked to pieces and it gets moved to act two instead of act three, by the way. So try this on for size, right? To be or not to be. Aye, that's the point. To die, to sleep, is that all? I all. No, to sleep, to dream. I marry, there it goes. Now, imagine if that had been the only version of this most famous of all speeches which came down to us. I doubt that it would stir the hearts and minds of men and women across the globe and down the centuries. Incidentally, we used to think of this as an earlier version, you know, rough draft. But now we reckon that what we've got here is a pirated version. Some bloke sitting in the audience may be furiously scribbling as much as he could pick up as the performance went on. You know, rather like a, it's like a hippie sitting at a Grateful Dead show with a tape recorder in his weed bag, right? Generous scholars might call it memorial reconstruction, but sure sounds like bootlegging to me. Anyway, the point I'm making is that there were 19 Shakespeare plays of various quality kicking around before 1623, and so there were both artistic and financial reasons for the king's men to put out an authoritative edition of their writer's corpus. A folio with its monumental size would lend credence to such authority, as well as do much to elevate the tone of the works contained therein. And the actual paper... That's got to come from France because the quality of English paper was too insufficient for a work intended as a memorial. So publishing a volume designed to impress is an expensive undertaking. Shakespeare doesn't seem to have provided any financial resources toward it in his will, though uh, he did leave some money to Hemings and Condell to purchase rings in his memory. So maybe the guys took some of that and put it toward the book. But, you know, as with so much else in Shakespeareana, the funding for the printing of the first folio lacks extensive documentation, and uncertainty about the details abounds. Scholars estimate the per-unit cost of printing at six shillings eightpence. We generally believe that the main financial contributors were two noblemen and patrons of the arts, William Herbert, the Earl of Pembroke, and his brother Philip. A prefatory letter written by Hemings and Condell expresses gratitude to the Herberts for their support and patronage. It begins in the most toadying way, quote, To the most noble and incomparable pair of brethren, William Earl of Pembroke and Philip Earl of Montgomery, all honor and happiness. And it goes on to suggest that the publication was made possible through the support of these patrons. Patronage, of course, was a common practice during this time, where writers, artists, and musicians had to rely on the financial support of aristocrats or wealthy individuals to pursue their creative endeavors. The Herbert brothers were known supporters of the arts, and their patronage likely played a crucial role in financing the ambitious project of compiling and printing something like the first folio. Bookseller Edward Blunt probably also staked a good deal of cash for the project, and he enlisted printer William Jaggard to do the actual work. Um, 
William probably didn't do much of the typesetting himself due to seriously declining health. And it's probable that his son, Isaac, is the primary hand responsible for the folio's actual production. Uh, He supervises at least five different compositors whose peculiar orthographic quirks run throughout the book. You know, different spellings, different uses of punctuation, um, sometimes even varying part names. Uh, I think in Romeo and Juliet alone, Lady Capulet is referred to as Lady Capulet, Old Lady, and Mother, depending on who was setting the type for that particular play. It's really kind of quirky. The, the book is full of those oddities. Anyway, as a historical curiosity, it seems that the Jaggered Printing House had actually dabbled in a bit of the uh, piratical bootlegging I mentioned a moment ago with their somewhat questionable production of a book called The Passionate Pilgrim. Uh, they printed that under Shakespeare's name in 1599, of course, without his permission or consent, Probably because of the 20 poems collected in that volume, we now believe only five to be actually the work of Bill himself. An epistle addressed to the great variety of readers follows the dedication to the Herberts, also written by Hemings and Condal. It provides further context for the publication while addressing potential criticisms and defending the decision to compile and publish Shakespeare's plays emphasizing their value and the need to preserve them. But most of all, the writers urge the readers to buy the book. Quote, Judge your sixpenneth, your shillings worth, your five shillings worth at a time or higher, so you rise to the just rates and welcome. But whatever you do, buy. Censure will not drive a trade or make the jack go. I love that. Uh, ben Johnson A contemporary and friend of Shakespeare, also a rival, includes a poem in praise of the great man in the prefatory material called To the Memory of My Beloved, the author William Shakespeare. It's a wicked famous poem, and it gives us much of the hyperbole that we still use to describe the bard's genius. Now, you've heard some of these lines, famous ones like Soul of the Age, the applause, delight, the wonder of our stage. Sweet swan of Avon, he was not of an age, but for all time. You know, great lines. And, of course, there's also the mildly, I think, snarky, though thou hadst small Latin and less Greek. Now, you had to get the elbow in, didn't you, Ben? Jeez. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts, or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. And then we get the catalog of plays. Attentive listeners will have noted that I mentioned the folios containing 36 plays, and that prior to its publication, 19 plays existed in quarto editions. Yes, 
So that means the first folio is our only source for a number of the Bard's works, including such heavy hitters as Macbeth, Antony and Cleopatra, Julius Caesar, Taming of the Shrew, Measure for Measure, and on and on and on. It's to the folio, I mean actually Hemings and Condell, that we owe our now familiar categories for these plays. Here, for the first time, do we get the plays grouped as tragedies, comedies, and histories. And while it's really familiar to us now, it actually can mess with our critical heads a bit. Because, you know, readers and students are so used to thinking of, say, you know, Richard III as a history play, and that we frequently study it in relation to Shakespeare's other history plays. You know, we see them as kind of part of a genre. But if we looked at the plays according to their date of composition, like all of a sudden we can see these fruitful comparisons and contrasts and developments in Shakespeare's writing across plays of a similar date. So, like, Richard III with The Two Gentlemen of Verona, for instance. And then you get some really interesting friction. And of course, the frontispiece of the book presents us with the famous Droshout portrait of Shakespeare. It's the most well-known of the portraits we have. Like, you know, if you imagine in your mind's eye what Shakespeare looked like, chances are you're imagining the Droshout portrait. It's an engraving on wood by Flemish artist Martin Droshout. Which one, we're not sure. Apparently, there were two. The engraving depicts Shakespeare in a relatively formal manner, wearing a high, rounded collar and a jacket. He has a receding hairline, really receding, and a dashing little mustache. And he appears to be looking directly at the viewer. Now, the Drowshout portrait is not detailed by modern standards, and it has come in for quite a bit of stick for its rather crude and rudimentary work, but we generally accept it as a generally accurate likeness, and it remains the iconic representation of Shakespeare, and it's frequently reproduced in you know various forms, um, largely gift shop bric-a-brac. I believe I have a tea mug somewhere. So, in November of 1623, the first folio edition of Shakespeare's plays made it to the shelves. Customer number one may well have been a book collector and politician named Edward Deering, and actually he bought two in December of that year, December 5th, I believe. Well, at least he's the first guy we have any records of. The book probably sold unbound for a pound or 15 shillings. A further five shillings would get a lovely binding for you. So 20 shillings, which is you know roughly 175 pounds or $200 today, which is not a negligible amount to spend on a book. But of course, this figure only accounts for general inflation, not buying power. You know, 15 shillings might be the yearly wage of an average laborer in 1623. Uh, 28,000 pounds seems to be the average wage in 2023, if you're curious. And as of October of this year, a first folio was offered at auction for $10.5 million. I reckon Edward Deering is sorry he went and died. The initial print run of the first folio was probably 750 copies. Now, of these, just over 230 remain, and they're mostly in private collections or museums. 
The Folger Library in Washington, D.C. has nearly a third of them. Copies often go on tour. I saw one a few years ago at Middlebury College here in my home state of Vermont. And it's just a wonderful thing being in the same room with a first folio. I know it's all psychological and sacralizing. I mean, you had to wait in line quietly, and then you were escorted into a small, dim room. The book is under glass, lit like a shrine, open to Hamlet's famous soliloquy in Act Three, where it ought to be. I mean, it's all what art critic John Berger would call, quote, the bogus religiosity which now surrounds original works of art. But whatever. You're in the presence of greatness, however corny that may seem. I don't care. Before you is a collection of the most beautiful language, the most stirring characters, the most profound insights into human experience ever transmitted to posterity. And that transmission was an act of love by friends who gambled much on this great venture. You know, Be as cool and sophisticated and detached as you want. I'll be a fanboy. I'll be your huckleberry. I'll take the warm heartbeat of Shakespeare's work every single time. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'll catch you next time for Julius Caesar. And, hey, it's a good thing the folio came out, right? Because otherwise we'd have nothing to talk about in the next show. We'd all just be squirming there in an awkward silence. Oh, God bless you, Hemmings and Condell. Okay, look, I just found out that I've probably been pronouncing the name of the portrait in this podcast incorrectly. I think I've been pronouncing it Drowshout. And uh, I just checked with the Folger Shakespeare Library, and I think the more correct pronunciation should be Drusout. And so uh, I apologize for my mispronunciation. Why didn't I check that before I made the podcast? Because I'm an idiot. Anyway, sorry about that, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.